0: George and John were very good friends. They shared a passion for Christ and an absolute commitment to each other and to prayer. They met and got close to each other during their time as students at Oxford University where they were part of the same Bible study in the same prayer group. Even then, as young men, God was shaping them because God was going to use them in dramatic ways. They became itinerant preachers and evangelists and leaders of the first great spiritual awakening of the 1700s in Britain and in America. They were co founders of the modern evangelical movement, so, in so many ways, our spiritual ancestors. On the absolutes and essential matters of faith, they agreed passionately, they poured out their lives for the gospel. BUT ON OTHER MATTERS OF FAITH AND THE APPLICATION OF SCRIPTURE, THERE WAS SIGNIFICANT DISAGREEMENT. THAT'S WHY IT MAY HAVE SURPRISED MANY THAT GEORGE ASKED JOHN TO PREACH AT HIS FUNERAL. GEORGE WAS GEORGE WHITFIELD AND JOHN WAS JOHN WESLEY. WHITFIELD WAS A CALVINIST WHO EMPHASIZED THE PREDESTINATION OF GOD AND THE irresistibility OF GOD'S GRACE WHEN IT CAME TO SALVATION. Wesley was an Arminian who emphasized human responsibility in response to God's grace when it came to salvation. Really big theological differences. The two preachers were also different in their styles. Wesley's services were charismatic and emotional, whereas Whitfield's were filled with reverence and reason. So how did these two theological giants maintain unity and friendship? They prayed for each other, honored each other, stirred one another up spiritually, and as they served together, they remained focused on the mission of the gospel. John did preach at George's funeral, and later that message was published, and he acknowledged their differences and what united them in Christ. And then he said this, there are many doctrines of less of a less essential nature with regard to which even the most sincere children of God are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think. We agree to disagree. And it was actually the first time that that phrase agree to disagree was formally published. It means to give room for others to think differently. And um, it's a common phrase today, but not always a common experience because that kind of unity doesn't come naturally. The tendency of the human heart when it comes to disagreement is we defend. And if we have any sense of insecurity in our lives, not only do we feel the need to defend, BUT WE ALSO DISCREDIT AND ATTACK THOSE WHO ARE are OPPOSING US. WE TAKE ON THAT that FIGHT. AND IF YOU WANT AN EXAMPLE OF THIS, JUST WATCH CABLE NEWS. OR SCROLL TWITTER. OR FOLLOW POLITICS HERE OR SOUTH OF THE BORDER. ENTRENCH, DEFEND, ATTACK. IT EVEN HAPPENS IN FAMILIES AND IN FRIENDSHIPS, IN WORKPLACES. And even in the church. And yet, as we began to look at last week, Jesus calls us to a better way. For those of us who know Him, who trust Him, Jesus invites us to discover how to live out our faith in unity and with love. And He actually sets this up as the litmus test of whether or not we are truly His disciples, His followers. As Jesus' followers, we are called to live in an alternative way to the culture. It should be different here. So when it comes to disagreement, hold fast to the absolute truths. Stand on the essentials. But on disputable matters and distinctives, we reason and discern together in unity. Sometimes we agree to disagree. And we remain together. It's about covenantal commitment built upon a dependency on God and humility. We have to have humility to realize that God has given others the ability and wisdom and insight to see things differently. And in these non-essentials, we remain open to each other and open to the spirit of God and teachable. Proverbs 27 tells us, offers this wisdom. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You know, I have never in any place in my life learned anything from someone who agreed with me all the time. We just don't. It's when we commit to each other in Christ and we are open to learn and understand and we are able to disagree without becoming disagreeable. And in that moment, we start to grow in our faith, grow in our dependency, grow in our love for God. And I think this is modeled for us beautifully in Romans chapter 14. And I'd love for you to open up your Bible there, the book of Romans chapter 14. And as you do, let me just set a bit of a context for the passage we're going to look at. Romans is an incredible book. And for the first 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has laid out the theological understanding of the gospel. What does it actually mean to be saved? How does God draw us to salvation? And what does that salvation look like lived out? And then starting in chapter 12, he pivots. He pivots to application and begins to focus on what does faith look like, especially in the, in the church and in community with each other. And chapter 12 begins this way. Therefore... In response to your salvation, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore is the pivot word. It means in response to what has just been laid out and said, in response to how God has treated you, in response to your salvation and your forgiveness, in response to all that you have received. Therefore, because you are now children of God through faith in Christ, this is how you ought to live. Different than the world, dedicated to God, Submissive to each other. And then in Romans 12:10, this, this is the summary command: be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Then in chapter 13, Paul gets really practical. And the next few chapters are all about application. And Paul starts with our relationship with the government and those in positions of authority. And he says, out of reverence for God, a spirit of submission and respect needs to be demonstrated. Wow. Not a popular message. Then or now. Nevertheless, the Bible is there. Have you ever, have you ever noticed we're pretty much literalist when it comes to the Bible, except for the passages we struggle with a little bit? We have to kind of figure out what to do with them. And yet, there it is. Next, Paul doesn't lessen the the challenge anymore. In chapter 14, what we're going to look at today, he zeroes right in on the church and our relationships together here in community. What was going on in the church at Rome? And in that context, there were two issues at hand that were causing incredible division. First, there was an issue of whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been dedicated to idols on its way to market. Then there was a second disagreement over what to do with the Sabbath laws. Were followers of Jesus required to keep them? Now, we might read those, and Paul spends a long time kind of laying them out, and we think, what's the big deal? Can't you guys just figure that out? It seems small to us, but for them, these were major issues, and the disagreement was tearing them apart. And so Paul dedicates two chapters of the Bible to helping them figure this out. AND AS YOU READ CHAPTERS 14 AND 15, YOU WILL SEE HE DOESN'T CALL THEM OUT FOR THEIR OPINION, BUT RATHER FOR THEIR CONDUCT. THINK ABOUT THAT. HE DOESN'T ACTUALLY CALL THEM OUT FOR THEIR OPINION. HE CHALLENGES THEM AROUND THEIR CONDUCT. HE'S MORE CONCERNED ABOUT THE ATTITUDES BEING EXPRESSED AMONG THE BELIEVERS TOWARDS EACH OTHER THAN ABOUT THE ISSUE ON WHICH THEY DISAGREE. SO WHAT WAS HAPPENING IN THE CHURCH IN ROME? Well, they were judging one another, Paul says. They were condemning one another, looking down on one another, not acting in love towards one another. And we do the same thing today. We get into passionate disagreements about secondary issues. We condemn and we disassociate those with whom we disagree. We take our preferences and disputable matters and we set them up as absolutes. We say, this is the line I'm drawing in the sand. And sometimes... Um, we argue over things that don't seem that important. It may seem odd to you that the early church was fighting over whether to eat meat or vegetables. But we, the truth is we do the same things. And some of the things we argue about are trivial. Enough so that some of us are actually embarrassed to introduce our unsaved friends to the church. Because of how we act, because of the things that divide us. Because we fight like everyone else, sometimes over small things, as things as small as eating meat and vegetables. And yet the gospel is beautiful, the gospel is incredible. And through the gospel, Jesus calls us not only to be reconciled to God, but to be live in reconciled relationships, unity and love with each other. In his classic book, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer writes, I observed one thing among true Christians in in their differences in many countries. What leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, 40 years is not the issue of doctrine or belief, which causes the differences in the first place. Invariably, it is is a lack of love, and the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. It is these things... It is these unloving attitudes and words that cause the stench that the world can smell in the church of Jesus Christ and among those who are true Christians. In other words, what is at stake in our life together as a church is nothing more than the glory of God in the world. The world is watching. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we are called to be the aroma of Christ in the world but if we were honest, we'd have to say that, you know, too often our fragrance doesn't smell that appealing. Our relationships with matter to God. And because they matter to God, he puts a passage like Romans chapter 14 in the Bible to show us how we can move together when, it, when everything else would cause us to push apart. How we can handle our disagreements in a different way than everyone else as a world watches and looks for an alternative so that we can show what Jesus is about and what the gospel of reconciliation is about. So my hope for this morning is that we can look together at what the Bible says about how to disagree in a godly way. Today in a... in this morning in our gathering and in our groups this week, we're going to be focusing in on Romans chapter 14. There's many places we could have gone, but we're going to focus here. And before we jump into the text, I want to just give you a couple of tools that I think might be helpful for you in situations you are facing, not just in the church, but in your family, in your workplace, in your personal life. I don't know about your family, but you know my family is far from perfect. Um, we all have these areas of, of disagreement and struggle. And so what are some tools that I can use in the midst of those to figure out, um, to figure out what it means to be committed to one another? The first one is a very simple one. It's called a fist of five. And it generally is used to just actually to figure out what's the level of disagreement here. And this is how it works. YOU TAKE ONE HAND AND YOU HOLD UP THE NUMBER OF FINGERS THAT INDICATES YOUR LEVEL OF AGREEMENT. SO A CLOSED FIST IS TOTAL OPPOSITION. AND I REFUSE TO MOVE TOWARDS CONSENSUS. ONE FINGER IS THAT I HAVE MAJOR CONCERNS, BUT I'M OPEN TO DISCUSSION BECAUSE I'M COMMITTED TO THE TEAM. TWO fingers SAYS I HAVE CONCERNS, BUT LET'S KEEP TALKING. Three fingers is, I'm not in total agreement, but I'm, uh, but I'm comfortable enough to move to forward together. Four fingers, I have a conviction that this is right, but I still have concerns, perhaps for myself and maybe for others who are involved. Five fingers, this is absolutely the way that we should go. And then you take your other hand and you start to rate how passionately you feel about the matter. One, I could take it or leave it. Five, this is critically important to me. So, on any given issue, what is your fist of five? One, one, I don't know, doesn't really matter. Five, five, I'm convinced, and this matters a lot. So, for me, I'm a two, five when it comes to the Leafs winning the first round of the playoffs. I am convinced once again this year that it is going to happen. But I'm not going to be surprised or hurt if it doesn't. That's the wisdom of experience. And the goal of this exercise is actually to open up our hands towards each other, to put the fists away, and to say, I am open to you. The second tool I want to give you is just simply some resources. I asked three of the Christian counselors and psychotherapists here at Compass uh, for their recommendation as to some good books that people could use to work through disagreement and to facilitate good, God-honoring conversations. And by the way, just as an aside, <clears throat> I would just want to say our Christian counselors and therapists are a val- v- valuable and vital part of our church community, and their work happens behind the scenes almost completely unnoticed. It is done quietly unto the Lord, but what a gift. And I just want to say to them, thank you for investing your lives in others. Well, here's what they recommended. And by the way, it's the subtitles that I love about these books. The first one was called Boundaries, Face to Face. How to Have That Difficult Conversation You've Been Avoiding by Cloud and Townsend. The second one is Space Between Us, Conversations About Transforming Conflict by Betty Price. And by the way, I've been told that this is a must-read for anyone in leadership. Third, Act With Love, Stop Struggling, Reconcile Differences, and Strengthen Your Relationship with Acceptance and Commitment by Russ Harris. And finally, Feeling Good Together, The Secret to Making Troubled Relationships Work by David Burns. And if you miss any of these and you're trying to write them down, don't worry, we've actually printed them out for you and they're on the information tables where you pick up your talking points after the service. And by the way, there's many more we we could could have added to the list. And we've also uh, put some resources at the tables as well for you. The third tool is simply this. Learn to map out your disagreement. Just get out a piece of paper and write it down. Define what is it exactly that we're talking about. CLARIFY WHAT THE POSITIONS ACTUALLY ARE, AND DO SO BY REMOVING THE STEREOTYPES. STOP THE RUMORS, STUDY THE MATTER, AND DON'T RELY ON GOOGLE. AND IF YOU CAN, TAKE THE EMOTION OUT OF IT, AND SIMPLY JUST BECOME AWARE OF WHAT'S GOING ON IN YOUR HEART. WHAT'S TRIGGERING FOR YOU? AND THEN BRING ALL OF THAT TO GOD. So when you're sitting at the dinner table and someone brings something up and all of a sudden you just feel yourself fired up, say to God, what's going on with that? What am I feeling? And what might God be revealing to you and saying to you and calling you to in the midst of that feeling? Maybe your your conflict is different. I don't know what it is that will cause trigger for you and in your relationships, but notice it. What bothers you? What fears are present? What emotions surface? Name them and ask God to help to hold them and to help you sort them in his time and in his way. Then start to map out the issue, whatever it is, just the facts, and you actually might find that you are closer than you think to those you disagree with. I want to do that this morning with just an example of an area of disagreement that we have in our church. And there's a risk in doing this, because when you name stuff, all of a sudden we could end up way down a rabbit trail. But I want to use this this morning as an example of how you could map out an issue by simply naming it and clarifying it. So there's no agenda here, and I promise there's no announcement coming at the end of this. <laughs> the issue is the role of women serving in leader in church leadership. And there is a spectrum of belief that people that have arrived at through their understanding of Scripture. <clears throat> and you could simply place it on a grid. And on one side of the grid, there would be a complementarian position that holds that men and women are equal, but have different complementary roles and responsibilities when it comes to leadership in the church. And that the role of elder or overseer is reserved for men. Beside it is the egalitarian position that holds that men and women are equal and are able to participate in all aspects of church leadership, including eldership, according to their giftedness, without restriction. And you can make a strong biblical argument for both positions. And as we saw last week, there's a tension that this creates, and that tension is an opportunity for us to pray, study work with God, commit to each other. I love Proverbs 25 two. It simply says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the honor of people to seek it out. It's our honor. It's our opportunity to come to these disputable matters and say, God, how would you have us live? How would you have us respond to this? Now, you could push beyond the arguments, and that's often what people do. You push beyond the grid, and you end up outside of Scripture and off the grid. So this is not about misogyny or chauvinism or extreme feminism or doing away with gender. So do not get, fall victim to the slippery slope. This isn't about refusing to endure sound doctrine or everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. This is about entering into the tension and working it through with people. When God's word committed to each other, wrestling with these disputable matters of scripture, and I'm telling you, it can be done beautifully in unity for the glory of God, regardless of the outcome. It really can be. So where is Compass on the matter? We have positioned ourselves right in the middle. We hold a complementarian position. We have male elders. And I will just simply tell you, it is a great and godly and humble team. Now, over the years, um, there has been different forms of church government, even here at Compass. We've had different iterations. And much of this predates even my arrival here. But the desire has been that in this theological position, it should be lived out with a gracious generosity, which allows everyone to use their gifts and abilities to serve God in the church. And that is why we have women serving alongside men on pastoral staff and in ministry leadership. It's why we have women and men leading in worship, serving communion, teaching God's word to children, adults, and students. Everyone who serves at Compass does so under the authority and with the blessing of our elders, who along with the whole church are under the authority and the blessing of Jesus. And we need to be allies for each other, partners in ministry, supporters of each other. So when a woman leads, bless her, pray for her, support her. When a man leads, bless him, support him, pray for him. And as I said, this has been a long time Uh, position for our church. The last time we updated the bylaws was a number of years ago. But I'll tell you, regardless of what the Constitution says, we've not lived this out well. We haven't. And the larger church has not led this out well. The elders did a study of this on this position a number of years ago. And here's what I want to be clear on. In our current complementarian structure, When a woman teaches or shares from our platform or leads in a ministry area, she does so with the full support of our elders team. She does so in submission to the authority of our elders team as I do. So just think for a moment, if that's the simple outline of the position, where would you fall? Where would you place yourself on that grid? Now, you may not be comfortable with a generous complementarian position, and you may want to push the needle one way or the other. On one end, there's a call for women to be silent, to cover their heads and to learn at home. On the other end, there's no gender restrictions whatsoever. If we were to have every person put a mark on the the grid, I think you would see in the end that we're actually not that far apart. And again, even as we talk about this as an example, think about what emotions are surfacing right now. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's, what's firing up? Hold on to those things and bring those things to the Lord. Regardless of the issue, God, what, what, where, where's the fear? Where's the anger? Where's the hurt? Where's the excitement? Where the, where's the joy? What's going on? Lord, would you help me sort this through? Maybe you go back to the fist of five. I'm absolutely convinced, and this is absolutely the most important thing we can talk about. Or... I don't know. It matters. And we figure it out together. So with all this kind of in mind as background, let's come to Romans chapter 14. Because Paul is in dialogue with the church, and I think it shows us in Paul's words how to be committed to each other even when we don't see things exactly the same way. So this is practical wisdom. And as I said, this could apply in your workplace, in your family relationships and here in the church. It begins in Romans 14, 1, which says, Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about things they think are right and wrong. Maybe we should just stop there. But verse 5 continues, In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. The principle is simply check your heart and make up your own ma- mind. Be passionate about this. On theological distinctives, do your work, study, think, pray, with the goal of a decision that brings peace of mind and peace in your heart. And as far as is up to you, peace in your relationships. The goal is for all of us to get along, not by thinking exactly alike or by merely tolerating each other, by accepting and appreciating and loving one another. Mutual respect, even when we disagree. Making up our own mind actually brings confidence. It allows me to accept others. Here's another example. As I said before, as a, my time as a pastor, there was a time when your view of the end times, what was gonna happen at the end of the world was incredibly important. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ could return at any moment and that will be the end. But there are some people who believe that there are specific events that still need to occur, like the rebuilding of the temple. And before that can happen, Jesus, before that happens, Jesus cannot return. And I'm able to listen and accept their heartfelt convictions and not agree. Because I have studied the Bible myself. I have considered the alternatives. I have formed my own convictions. And I'm not threatened by their disagreement. As long as we agree on the absolute Jesus is coming again. Second, live so that no one can criticize your decisions. And what I mean by that is that, look at verse 6. It says, people on both sides were seeking to honor the Lord. So whether it's one who eats or one who fasts, in both cases, their character shines through. This is about being called to a life that is marked by humility and kindness and compassion and love for others. Honesty, integrity, and hope. If these things are present in your life, then it doesn't matter whether or not you mow your grass on Sunday or eat non-kosher food. People will see the character of Jesus in you. Third, allow others room to form their own convictions even when they differ from yours. When Paul says none of us live for ourselves, he's pointing back to the fact that we're all saved by Christ. We stand as equals at the foot of the cross. This is a call to focus on the absolutes that unite us rather than the, uh, the preferences that, dis- that cause us to disagree. I think Wesley and Whitfield would have loved this one. Four, refuse to condemn those who see things differently. And I'm telling you, this one's huge and countercultural these days. In verse 10, Paul says, Why do you judge your brother or sister? And the word judge there can be translated condemn. You take the place of God and you determine, obviously, they must not be saved. And we can do this in so many subtle and not so subtle ways. We can do this through humor and through poking fun and through our words and comments. It's as simple as picking up some petals of pride, thinking, I've got it figured out, and then we toss them in their, uh, in front of them through our words and actions. Not judging doesn't mean you don't have your convictions, It it means that you refuse to condemn others for having theirs. And if you are convinced that you are making the best decision in your best understanding before God for the decisions of your life, give others the same grace to come to their own conclusions and abstain from condemning and criticizing. Sometimes we do this as parents. We look at how somebody else is raising their children or maybe how another parent responds in a certain situation. And you would not have chosen to do it that way. And we think, wow, you know what? Maybe this is the opportunity for a little evaluation, maybe a little criticism. And if I don't do it directly to them, maybe I'll just talk to somebody else about what I think should be happening in that circumstances. I think it would be way better to button it and to simply pray, encourage, and offer some practical help. Five, Focus on things that unite us, not that divide us. Verse 8 ends with the declaration, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and, and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. We are family. We are redeemed by his blood. Jesus is the great unifying factor for the people of God. He has broken down the walls of separation between us and God and between us and one another. In him, we are joined together as a family, united around the cross and the absolutes of our faith. Sixth, and I love this advice, enlarge your circle of friends, purposefully including those who think differently. When when verse 10 asks, why do you look down on your brother and sister? The opposite implication is also there. Why don't you respect your brothers and sisters in Christ? Admire them include them. I think your world would be so much better and you would experience a greater sense of the kingdom of God if you had friends in your life and people in your life who thought differently than you. If you're a vegetarian and all your friends are vegetarians, I'm telling you, you have a very small vision of life. So get to know some meat lovers. And if you are a barbecue king, invite a vegan to your next get-together. Get together Respect those who think differently. Enlarge your vision. Enlarge your community. Amy and I did this intentionally when our children were younger. We had people in our lives that we introduced to our boys who did not think, sound like, or look like us. It was good and healthy to have friends who who you truly like but don't see eye to eye with on every issue. And this is about growing in covenant relationship with each other, where I am committed to you and you are committed to me beyond just the areas where we agree. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of cliques. And anytime someone disagrees, they get moved out or encouraged to move on. And relationships sever and hearts get wounded and judgments are solidified but when we, when we gather just because of agreement, it actually tempts us and leads us towards arrogance and isolation, to the belief that we are the ones who've got the whole truth. And we all know churches and Christians who have felt like they've kind of had the corner on the truth. But the truth is, none of us have it completely right all the time. So instead of just gathering around agreement, let's go further and gather around relationship, much like a family. You see, Jesus didn't invite us to join a political party. He invited us to join his beautiful, messy family and to live together in community with one another. Covenant relationship doesn't mean we never disagree. It means that we promise to work through our disagreements and to fight for the relationship. Imagine if we did that in all the spheres and sectors of our life. It means we promise to work through them we committed to each other. Are you committed to our church because of covenant or agreement? Are you committed to your family because of covenant or just because of agreement? Where does your commitment lie and where does your commitment end? Seven, live with eternity in mind so that you have nothing to fear when you stand before God. From what you know of God, how will he respond to you when you stand before him one day? When the book of your life is opened and revealed? I don't know how public that is. I I think God's gracious, so I'm hoping he and I can just talk about it one-on-one at first. I think that might be better. But what will it be like when that happens? Will there be anything there from the way you handle disagreement that you wish you had done differently? Can you imagine saying, yes, you know, God, I was cold-hearted, brutally honest, a bit of a jerk, but I was right. Like, I was right. Isn't that that what's important? I think God in his grace is going to tell you that being right was not as important as being in right relationship in the midst of it. And so we defend what we know to be true and what we believe and what our convictions are. We will need to give an account for our, our decisions, our convictions, but also for our character and for our actions Um, and our words and our practices. So live with that day in mind. Finally, eighth, let your your liberty be limited when necessary by love. This is completely countercultural. And Paul sets up the example here. He says, you know, I could have done this. I was free to do that but I chose not to because I didn't want to harm the relationship or hinder my fellow brothers or sisters. So I limited myself intentionally. I made that choice because I trust that God is writing a bigger story and I am secure in my faith and I'm willing to lay down my rights on this one. I disagree, but I'm choosing not to be disagreeable. And the next time you're tempted to criticize someone, before you utter a word, stop and say a prayer for that person. Ask God to bless them. Pray for them, that God will guide them, and yield your heart to the Lord. Modern example. Last week during the Super Bowl, if you got the American feed, uh, you may have seen the TV ads, He Gets Us. If you didn't, you can check them out. They're online, they're on YouTube, hegetsus.com. What happened was a group of business uh, owners got together and they collected money to produce a series of TV spots and a website that was simply meant to get the discussion about who Jesus is going in the culture. It was a discussion starter, and they ran those ads during the Super Bowl. And they were great. You can check them out. Now, whether you like the ads or not, this week I have been troubled by the negative response to them. NOT FROM THE WATCHING WORLD. MY NON-CHRISTIAN FRIENDS HAVE EITHER SAID, WELL, THAT WAS DIFFERENT, OR THAT WAS PRETTY AMAZING. BUT WHAT HAS HAPPENED WITHIN THE CHURCH? THOSE WHO PRODUCED THEM HAVE BEEN CALLED EVERYTHING FROM WOKE TO CHRISTIAN NATIONALISTS. THEY TAKE FRIENDLY FIRE FROM ALL SIDES. WHEN MAYBE THEY WERE JUST MAKING SOME TV COMMERCIALS THAT WOULD HELP PEOPLE WATCHING TALK ABOUT MORE THAN JUST A FOOTBALL GAME and to be reminded of who Jesus is for 30 seconds. News also came this week about a chapel service at Asbury Seminary where, students, where a student got up and confessed his brokenness and his struggles and his need for God. And in that very normal chapel service, something changed in the spiritual realm. And that service is still going on Today. 200 plus hours later, they're still worshiping and praying and seeking God this morning. A bunch of young people just stirred up by the Holy Spirit. And the church is analyzing it. Is it a genuine revival? Is it being led properly? How do we know this is a God thing? And while discernment is always needed, sometimes the commentary feels like the halftime show of of a sporting event. Could we not just accept and celebrate that God has shown up and the Spirit is moving in some powerful ways amongst some students who created space, place, and time for God? And maybe say, you know what, God? I'd love if that happened here. If that spilled out amongst us in our day and our time. I love how Romans 14 ends with these, the final paragraph begins with these words of exhortation, and it's where we'll end today. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Oh, Lord, do it in our day and in our time. Unite us at the cross. Make us a covenant community who loves each other, who stands on the absolutes and essentials, who wrestles together with those things that we don't agree upon, and who do it all for the glory of God. Would you stand with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and love. And Lord, I do pray that you would forgive us for those times that we have failed to live according to your word. We have majored on the minors and we have divided your family. Oh Lord, stir within us a holy passion for you, for your word, for your spirit. Lord, would you make us one even as you and the Father are one. And Lord, would you grant us supernatural patience to live with each other in community? Bring us all together as a Christian family and let us work together with an understand with understanding and compassion in our hearts. Let us not be rude or arrogant as we light the way to your heavenly kingdom. In how we live may there be a sweet fragrance to you and to the world of those who love God wholeheartedly and each other sacrificially. Lord, would you give us a commitment to love one another as you have loved us, that the world may know that we are your disciples by our love for one another, and give us a hunger to live in unity, to live under your word, with each other in a bond of peace and fellowship. And we ask all this passionately in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.